0: The town of Crawley in West Sussex was the town where I was born and grew up. I knew it as a new town, a town that emerged out of the Second World War, but it was based around a much older community. And as I grew up and a childhood fascination with the Great War turned into something much more, I realised that in the churchyards and the cemeteries and the streets of this town there were the traces of the Great War, the traces of the men of the Great War, from the town of Crawley and the surrounding villages of places like Ifield and Three Bridges. And in some of my earliest trips to the battlefields along the old front line, I sought out the graves of men from the town who were listed on the panels of the War Memorial. But one man who has taken that in recent decades to a very different level of research is Rennie Richardson. Rennie's also connected to the town of Crawley like I am, and as we'll discover, he's written extensively on this subject and is working on his third book now. So I'm pleased to be joined by Rennie Richardson to discuss the men of Crawley who marched to war in nineteen fourteen and the names of the fallen of the town who were familiar to me as I grew up there in the 1970s and 80s. So let's head for a trench chat with Rennie Richardson. Well welcome to the Old Frontline podcast uh, Rennie Richardson and thanks for joining us Rennie.
1: Thanks Paul, it's great to be here. Nice to see you again.
0: Now you and I have got a connection to a little place in West Sussex called Crawley. Um, I grew up in Crawley Newtown as it was of course then you know born there in the late 60s and spent a big chunk of my life there but your your family and you have got kind of much older connections to it and both of our paths kind of crossed with an interest in the first world war but yours has led you on to write about Crawley and the men from Crawley who were in the
1: first world war yeah that's right I mean my family originally came to Crawley in 1860 odd And they start, my great-great-grandfather started a building company, and it wasn't until I started researching the family tree that I realised just how many important buildings in Crawley they'd actually built, like St Peter's Church, for argument's sake. And um, after a family tragedy um, in which the family heir was actually, um, the heir to the business was actually uh, unlawfully killed, what the the chap that we know as Uncle Ted became the heir to the business and it's like I said when I started researching the family tree I discovered that he was um actually a prime mover in the old volunteer movement. he joined up with the volunteers in March 1891 and served with them uh, and served with various battalions etc etc right beyond the end of the Great War so when volunteer movement became the territorial movement. He was heavily involved in all that. And um, he was actually one of the main leaders of the what became C Company of the 4th Battalion Royal Sussex. So he saw it virtually all. And then, of course, he ended up serving himself on the Western Front.
0: And Crawley, I mean, you know, the Crawley that I knew was a, was a new town with lots of modern buildings, it amalgamated a whole series of kind of villages around the centre of Crawley to, to become the town that it is today. But Crawley in 1914, I would guess, was a very different kind of Crawley.
1: Oh, it really was. I mean, Crawley today is, uh, I think, there's something like 110,000 people live in the surrounding area. And Crawley, at the turn of the 20th century, had fewer than 10,000 people living there. Um, so it was a very, very different place. Um, it was all centred around the high street because uh, you had the old traditional um, coach and horses lying down from London to Brighton, probably is equidistant between London and Brighton. So it's the ideal place for a coaching halt on the on one side on the on the, on the one side of the street. You'd have the White Hart that was going down to Brighton and on the other side of the street. You had the George Hotel which was going up to London, and that's where they used to change their teams of horses and sometimes stay overnight, depending on the time of day. That's where Crawley was, really. Oh, you also had the railway, of course, which sort of bisected the old high street. Um, So it was really quite a thriving market town at the turn of the 20th century. And like I said earlier, it had a small military presence amongst the hustle and bustle. And, uh, yeah, it was a um, almost an idyllic place to live.
0: And I guess kind of news of the war came to Crawley probably via the railways um, and through notices from the war office coming to the local men. You mentioned C Company there, the 4th Royal Sussex. That was a, the local company, wasn't it, of was the lads from Crawley who were serving in that battalion?
1: Yeah, it was uh, predominantly... It was originally Crawley and East Grinstead and then it became Crawley and Horsham. Um, somewhere after war was declared. But yeah, um, news of the war. Well, uh, Uncle Ted and the 4th Battalion were actually um, at their summer camp on the downs above New Haven uh, that bank holiday weekend when war was declared. And the local newspaper, um, full the next week, as you can imagine, the news of the war and how it would affect the local community. And it shows quite clearly that Uncle Ted and one or two others had been mobilised straight away the very next day. Um, So as you can imagine, it was a time of crisis. And those men of the local battalion,
0: which were territorials, pre-war territorials, and and in rural communities like Crawley, because it was a kind of rural market town, wasn't it really, at, at at that time? Those men would have kind of gone off to war straight away. But I guess there would
1: also have been local men who were in the regular
0: army at that time.
1: Oh, yes, uh, undoubtedly, Uh, and uh, some of them were, you know, very strange regiments, like there's a local chap who ended up uh, fighting and um, being killed on the Western Front, serving with the 8th Black Watch, for argument's sake. So, yeah, it was a a mixture. All the research has shown, you know, it wasn't just uh, men from Sussex fighting in Sussex battalions, it was men from Sussex fighting in battalions all over the country. And I think that's true. I mean, only recently, while I was out, out in Belgium myself, I came across a chap from the 4th Sussex, from Yorkshire, uh, who was killed in 1918, buried at Hooch. So, yeah, it's it wasn't as straightforward as some people might imagine, that it was just purely blokes from Sussex fighting for Sussex. It was far more convoluted than that.
0: And I would guess that uh, when news came and men were mobilised and so on, that many would have wanted to participate in the war, like every town across Britain at that time, and that some may well have joined that 4th Battalion as wartime volunteers, but then others would have joined
1: the, the service battalions of the, the local regiment. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, obviously, um, at that point, they all thought it was going to be over before Christmas. So there was a mad rush. Yeah, the Fourth Battalion very quickly they they the Fourth Battalion went off for proper training camp, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and there became like a second Fourth um, Battalion um, to be trained up. But yeah, it was a time of great crisis, and there was a lot of a lot of floods of volunteers. You can you can see they were having even before the war they would have what they called smoking concerts at the railway hotel, which is just by the level crossing. You and I probably, we remember that as the rocket, but uh, it's still the railway, it's back being the railway hotel now. And they would have uh, what they called smoking concerts uh, once or twice a year, which would double as recruitment things. So they'd all sit there smoking their pipes and having a brass band play. And it was a recruitment drive. And some of the, some of the research I've been doing recently about the 4th Battalion, you can clearly see men signing up on one night and being given a regimental number or battalion Italian number. And then some of these chaps actually fought side by side all the way from Savla Bay, the landing at Savla Bay, all the way through to the end of the war. And they fought side by side. It's rather like Band of Brothers, really.
0: And, and that was the route for a lot of these early this, wasn't it? Not, not to the Western Front, but to, to Gallipoli.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, For many of them, Well, all of them, really, all of them who landed there that night, uh, it became very much the pivotal moment of their lives. Uh, Again, some of the research I've been doing for this latest book, it shows um, that they were having annual reunions for years, decades afterwards, and the only criteria was whether you were part of the battalion when they landed at Subler Bay.
0: Uh, That's really interesting, uh, because in the West Sussex archives, I know there's a list of them that landed there. I wonder if that was the kind of impetus for... For putting that list together, to whether you criteria as to be an original or not an original for the Veterans Association.
1: Well, yeah, I, I do find it quite strange because uh, one of the uh, one of the reunions pretty early on. I think we're talking round about nineteen twenty three. One of the they had a a, a big to do about this slideshow and how nice it was, and it basically told, I'd love to see these pictures. I don't know where they are now, but. Had a slideshow and the whole reunion dinner. The lights were dimmed, and it took them through stills of photographs, right from uh, Gallipoli, right up until when they were actually at Cologne um, after the war, uh, and every step of the way. So I've never been able to uh, to understand how how they actually the criteria was to be um, part of the battalion when they landed at Savla Bay, and yet they embraced the whole battalion history. Seems. A trifle odd, still.
0: And and the, the campaign, or the, well, the bit of the campaign that they took part in at Gallipoli, there wasn't actually a great deal of fighting for them there, was there? There was the landings and then they moved inland and it went static.
1: Yeah, Yeah, the, the diary says that um, they spent um, more than uh, half the time basically in reserve, basically forming working parties, etc. But yeah, I mean, they did see some fighting, but of course... A lot of um, the stuff that they, the eyewitness reports, et cetera, et cetera, that you would actually expect um, from other battalions, it's um, there's a paucity of. Them. So we can see that there has they have seen action, and uh, there are one or two eyewitness reports of the landing initially, but after that, no, there's not really that 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 much by way of information. So yeah, they saw some action, but they didn't see as much action as some others. Put it like that.
0: But I remember kind of looking at one or two uh, guys who were there and the casualty rate, although it wasn't a massive one from enemy fire, from, from shell fire or machine gun or rifle fire, they were suffering
1: casualties from sickness, from the conditions. Oh, undeniably. In fact, I think that was probably... Uh, uh, there are other crawly chaps uh, searching, um, that I've researched. There's a chap buried in Malta, for argument's sake, who died of dysentery on a troop ship after he'd been evacuated. And there are men from the 4th Battalion who basically got some sort of dreadful illness and were invalided home and never served again. It had such a debilitating effect on them. So I think it's it's really important that people, uh, when it comes to this subject, to, to realise that, yes, there was enemy fire and, yes, it was atrocious, et cetera, like that. But um, illness played a big part in the casualty rate there, without a doubt.
0: And it must have felt, I guess, that you know, a group of men coming from a little, what is quite a sleepy town like Crawley in 1914 and going to Turkey, Gallipoli,
1: it must have felt like travelling to an alien planet for some of them. Well, yeah, very much so. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have some letters from one or two of the Crawley boys and they, they write home about how unusual it is to see things like fig trees for argument's sake. And it's quite uh, it's quite moving. There's one chap called Billy Knight who essentially he joined um, at one of these smoking concerts, and he served right throughout the war. He was wounded a few times, but uh, he actually writes home about Charlie Sayers who's been killed by a sniper and is buried out in Gallipoli. And the news for is first brought home by another chap from West Street Crawley, uh, and he actually goes to Charlie Sayers' parents and tells them what's happened. So it's um yeah it was uh it was a hell of an experience for them so in the early period
0: of the war you know there was a few regulars in the army but a lot of men served with the territorials in Gallipoli, but as the war moved on and the focus was very much on the western front i guess the the key battles that we'd think of when we think of the great war, Crawley men were very much involved
1: in those ah uh, yeah i mean uh, uh, yeah i I sometimes think there's uh, the bigger battles you know like with, talking predominantly the Solomon deep you could probably write a book about the town's experiences just based on those alone. To give you some idea of, of the contribution that Crawley, a small town, made, it, it, I always use this analogy. Between the beginning of the Battle of Messines to the end of the Battle of Passchendaele, there was something like Crawley had 25 uh, men killed. If you read the newspaper articles at the time, it actually refers to something like 50, 52 men being wounded in that time. Now, statistically, it's impossible that uh, each man who was serving at the time has either been killed or wounded. There must be men who were serving at the time that didn't pick up a, a wound or were killed. So the figure, initially, it looks as though it's about 75, 77 chaps, but the figure is actually far greater than that. And of course, we will never really know just how many men from the town actually served, even today, even this morning, when I was doing a bit of writing and researching, I came across a name I'd never heard before. So it's a far bigger subject. And I think, as we both know, the last word on the Great War will never be written.
0: No, uh, we often say that on this podcast about the, the last page will never be turned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the fascinating thing about War Memorial and local research like this is that you... You do keep uncovering new information, and names pop out of the past.
1: Well, yeah, um, I, I referred to the chap who fought with the Eighth Black Watch earlier, and uh, it came to light um, more by. Well, it was kind. Of, it was a, a complicated story. Now, the Eighth Black Watch. He was killed at Delville Wood, uh, and he was killed the same day as Eric Milroy, the um, famous uh, Scottish rugby international. And our chap, his name was—he was a lieutenant. He was called George Harold Sprake, and he was the battalion transport officer. And he was sent up to lead the men because all the officers had been killed. So he'd been sent up to lead the men, and very quickly after he arrived at the front line, they got overwhelmed and surrounded by the Germans. And to all intents and purposes, George Sprake disappeared that day. And nobody really knew, including his wife and his family back home in Frawley, nobody really knew what happened, what happened to him until after the war. First of all, he was reported as uh, missing. Then he was reported as uh, missing and wounded. And for years, his poor wife and his family didn't know what had happened to him. And it was only when uh, um, a couple of prisoners of war were released and came home in January 1919, the full story came out. And what had happened, and I have two letters from uh, two different chaps uh, saying this, that apparently uh, they had surrendered. And uh, he uh, had forgotten to remove his um, pistol from his uh, holster. And apparently the German inter-officer came up to him, took the, holster, uh, took the gun out of the holster, and shot him dead with it. And one of the eyewitness reporters, uh, reports says uh, I, he fell to the ground and he moved no more. And he's still somewhere out in Del- Delville Wood. To this very day. So, yeah, I mean, the more you dig, the more you find.
0: And I think these kind of stories that we find on through war memorials with missing soldiers give us an insight into the kind of cruel nature of the war, in that that family waited
1: so long to get that news. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a story that I've just written about uh, that's, uh, for an article for the local paper for Remembrance this year um, of the Rosell family in 1917. Uh, there was a uh, mother, uh, Alice Rizell. Uh She was a widow and she had three children. She had a son, William Rosell, and she had two daughters. And the two the two daughters married a chap called Robert Joseph Moore and uh, Clara married uh, William Pullen. In 1917, William and, and Robert were serving with the artillery and William was sent home. Compassionate grounds, because Clara was dangerously ill. When he got home, he'd missed her; she'd already passed on. While he was there, about to go back to the front, the news arrived that uh, uh, William Rosell had been uh, shot through the heart by a sniper. He's buried at uh, Regina Trench. So he goes back to the front. Uh, Robert Joseph Moore um, was killed in the week-long uh, build-up to Third Ypres. Uh, being an artillery, I guess it was retinal retaliatory shell fire that did for him if if you go to where he's buried at liston hook there's quite a few of his um, comrades all uh, died on the same day so you've got william pullen there he's lost his wife his brother his his, uh, two brothers-in-law are both dead and he himself was he died of gas poisoning at the same hospital remy siding and he's buried 72 paces away from Robert Moore. And it's, they're buried at Liston, which is, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's a vast cemetery. There's only two chaps from Crawley buried there. And they're buried that close together. And you know that in his time of, of away from the firing line, you know that he would have gone to have stood at Robert Moore's grave to pay his respects, little knowing that a few weeks later he'd be buried there himself. Wow, that is a tragic story, yeah. Absolutely. Well, they are all tragic, but uh, that is none more so than that story. And William Rizal, uh,
0: when I lived at Corselet, I often used to walk up to Regina Trench and go and see uh, his grave in there. And, of course, I knew Alf Rizal, uh, who was a veteran of the Royal Fusiliers, who uh, I once asked Ralph about that um, because it's such an unusual name, and he he thought that he was some kind of distant cousin. Uh, so who knows you know he he had no knowledge of Crawley or what the connection was there but he thought you know given the name and they were both in the southeast as it were then there's got to be some connection between them
1: well you would think so because as you're saying it's an unusual name but the thing is as we both know that when they came back those that did come back didn't talk about what they'd been through and some of them didn't talk about it ever so it really is it's it's like a minefield, literally like a minefield. Trying to establish exactly what is true and what isn't true, and whether whether Alf Rosell was actually related to William Rosell, we'll never really know. The likes of you and I, no, no. Well, he was surprised that because
0: um, I think he said something to me about his name being unusual. I said, "Well, actually, there's someone with your name on my local war memorial that I, I walk past every time I go into town." Really? Uh, and he was like, "Really." <laughs> So, uh, but he never heard of the guy, but he thought, he said, it has got to be a cousin. I mean, who knows? Like you say, who knows? But I mean, the Battle of the Somme was quite a, a punishing period for, for Crawley men. 1916, the, the, the terrible losses began, I guess, with Rishburg and the men who joined the South Downs
1: battalions. Yeah, absolutely. They, again, I've uncovered a few names that aren't actually on the uh, Crawley War Memorial. They had connections with the area, whether they're remembered anywhere else. I've yet to ascertain um but it's probably the most poignant story from from that particular day is uh um the one of Albert Brett who um joined up early doors and uh, as we both, as we know that was their baptism of fire um and he was last seen badly wounded in a trench he'd been home once i think uh, since they they were mobilized and started training and everything he'd been home once and while he was at home he He sired a daughter, which, of course, he never met because his body was never recovered and he's just one of the missing. And when I started researching uh, Crawley into the 1920s and the 1930s, I came across a few reports of Remembrance Sunday where little Miss Brett was actually uh, leaving a a wreath on the uh, cenotaph at St. John's Church. And she did that three or four years on the trot. So, again it's it's extremely sad that you have this little girl who never knew her dad and is there the center of attention on uh, every remembrance sunday for a few years so yeah it's extremely sad
0: and and battles like the somme and, and Epe, you know we kind of think of those as being the dominant battles of the first world war but certainly in my experience of looking at war, warmers often the kind of final year of the war can can be just as just as deadly
1: oh I'd, yeah absolutely i in I'd probably, it's probably more brutal, I think, certainly for the uh, the townspeople of Crawley or the men of Crawley than any other year. I mean, those that uh, my own cousin, uh, Eddie Cook, I call him my cousin, he's something like a third cousin or something like that. Um, he was fortunate enough to survive the the fighting of March the 21st, the great German onslaught then. And then he and his battalion were moved to the quieter sector just outside Armentières, which is where the next German blow fell in April. So when they woke up on the morning of April the 9th and could see that the front line was being basically destroyed and they had to become the front line themselves, he must have thought, well, you know, I was lucky enough to get out of the last one. Am I going to get out of this one? And of course he didn't.
0: And he was killed during that period of the Battle of the Lys.
1: Uh, yeah, he was. He was. Uh, there's a telegram. A telegram which I, I cannot find a copy of, but it's alluded to in the newspaper that he, the telegram arrived home on the eleventh of April, saying that he'd been wounded in the abdomen. Uh, so, you're you're safe in assuming that he's actually in official hands at that point. But a telegram which I have got a copy of uh, arrived on the thirteenth that said that he'd, uh, he he died of wounds. And if you look at his record, he, he actually, he's found to be dead on admission at Mendingham Military Hospital. So he obviously didn't survive the journey from the, for, for wherever he was wounded. And of course, I will never know, because if you look at the battalion war diary, they don't actually get involved in any fighting that day. But they did send out one or two patrols. So my theory is, is that he was leading one of those patrols and they go into a bit of trouble but that's only a theory I will never know.
0: No, that period of the spring of 1918 when there were so many losses, particularly amongst officers, the kind of story of some of these battalions is lost when you start to look into it. The diaries are,
1: are very brief, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, because uh, sometimes, in some cases, they were actually written by people who, you know, were nowhere near what had actually happened. These, If, for example, they sent out a patrol, which is what I think is how Eddie Cook met his fate, there's no record of it because there, there are quite a few other people from the same battalion at Mendingham who who have died at the same time, so they could be part of the patrol. I don't know, but if a patrol went got sent out and nobody really survived to report what actually happened, then it doesn't make its way into the diary, so it just gets it's almost airbrushed out of history. Yeah,
0: and and I remember that that kind of March 1918 period was you know all part of that spring offensive quite a few local men Uh, there was a i remember one of the first i ever looked up was major major banham of the ninth royal sussex
1: yeah absolutely and he just got swept away he was an absolute hero i mean if you if you look at uh, his career he worked his way up through the ranks he'd been injured he'd been gassed he'd been god knows what and he was a bloke and he's there are one or two photographs of him online he looks like quite quite a I think what's the expression a thruster? Yeah, he just got swept away like so many others. I think truly lost uh, over a dozen in those in March the twenty-first and subsequent days, just swept away because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And one of those that got swept
0: away, then, was a lad called Edwin Linfield, whose medals that I rescued from a from a dealer many years ago. Uh, He was the son of the the local coal merchant. When I looked him up in the um, I think the Sussex Daily News. And he lived in Alpha Road, which our listeners, only you and I know where that is, but uh, yes. uh, it's a kind of a little road just off the railway crossing in um, in Crawley, or one of the railway crossings. And when I went there in the 80s, uh, it's still the kind of, the coal merchant's yard was still part of the house.
1: All, all those houses, I mean, I don't know. I shall never be able to prove it, but all those houses around that part of Crawley, I think, were actually built by my family, the cooks at some stage. Oh, really? And it's nice to see that they're still standing. As you say, the coal the coal bunker or the coal shed or whatever, and I'm sure that was part of it.
0: And what was interesting, I actually met someone who knew him and could remember him going round Crawley with the, uh, with the coal cart and his oh, dad wow. and delivering the coal to the... Uh, uh, to the people of Crawley, which of course would have been a big thing then, wouldn't it?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's strange for us to be sitting here now in this, uh, this um, year of 2022. It's, um, I always think they were ordinary people, uh, but their lives are extraordinary to us because the world they lived in has disappeared forever. People who've been born in the last 20 or 30 years can't possibly... Uh, wouldn't even contemplate the fact that once upon a time you had a, fo- uh, a chap going around uh, on a horse and cart delivering coal just to keep uh, people warm throughout the winter it, it, it seems almost impossible now doesn't it it does
0: yeah I'm sure it does to many people yeah uh, and I guess kind of the art of what you do when you research
1: a woman where well, you become a kind of detective really don't you Oh, yeah, you have to be. I mean, there there is a certain, there's a large part of uh, intuition that goes with it. There's a large part of guesswork, but you have to be so careful. Um, When you come to write write it and put it into a book and publish a book, you have to be really sure of your facts. So I, I tend to err on the side of caution when it comes to it. If I'm not sure of something, I don't put it in. It's as simple as that. I can make guesses like I've just alluded to uh, the fate of Eddie Cook. I can make guesses about what happened to him. And in fact, I put that in the book that what I, my theory is a guess, and that's all it is. So you can make guesses. You can uh, make intuitive leaps about the fate of one or two chaps. But you'll never really know it was chaos. It was whether, whether they were mounting an attack or whether they were um, fending off an attack or it was chaos and the last thing anyone had any time to do is to write a load of notes about what happened to so and so
0: yeah i think it gives you an insight into the vastness of it how men could just disappear from history by walking into what was the western
1: front oh absolutely i i, I funny enough I, I i came back uh we went for a trip over over to Weep in september and I went to one of the places I wanted to see was where the 4th advanced from Kemmel to White Sheet. And it's along, I think it's, it's Suicide Road or Suicide Alley. And we drove along there and we stopped because it was a stunning panorama of what was the battlefield. And you can see deep over over in the distance to your left. And of course, you know how flat it is there. And it really gave you a perspective, unlike any other vista I think I've ever seen, it really gave you a perspective of just how vast the battlefield was. And, how, and like I said, how do you trace what happened to Jones? You know, you just, you can't. One minute they're there, the next minute they're gone. That's right. And when you read about, you know, you read the memoirs of men who were there, the
0: randomness of death, you can you can never, like you say, really entirely pinpoint how men ended their days on the Western Front or any battles or the Great War, unless there is a eyewitness account and in the, the midst of shot and shell like you said who had time to do that
1: well there's a um, story of uh william scutt who uh, he was with the um the eighth battalion sussex and they went into Fay wood um to make an attack uh, on troneswood and they went in at night and in the morning he wasn't there and uh, I've got a letter from his sergeant to his family saying, well, we've looked everywhere. We don't know where he is. We've looked in the hospitals. He The last time I saw him was not at lights out, but, you know, it was it was um, dark. And in the morning, he wasn't there. And to all intents and purposes, William Scott is still out there in Bernafay Woods somewhere. No one will ever know.
0: No. And when, when the war came to an end, you said there was well, a population of about 10,000 in Crawley. What was the kind of scale of losses for for local men?
1: Well, there's over 120 people on the war memorial, so from a town of about 10,000, yeah, it was it was a what's the expression? They sit no more at familiar tables at home. Everyone knew somebody who'd lost somebody. There's uh, where, where the Rosell family lived in West Street. The Fair family are two doors uh, down from them. They lost two out of three sons. The other son spent the entire war in a prisoner of war camp because he was captured at Mons. It it affected every single member and every single part of uh, everyday life. And through the the prism of Crawley and its experiences, you get a sense of exactly what it must have been right right throughout the nation. And with a small kind of close-knit rural
0: community that Crawley would have been then, do you think that kind of um, made the losses harder or worse in some respects? Because like you said, people were connected so readily either by living on top of each other or through marriage and everything else.
1: Well, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a way to answer that. I know that uh, it was dreadful. I know from my own family, the, the impact of the death of Eddie Cook had on the family because by a bizarre twist of fate, he was due to be the heir of the family business. So the uh, the family business, um, him being the only son, then shifted to another part of the family. So just that alone changed not just their lives, but changed my life because uh, the family business was wound up in uh, before I was born because there were wa- there were no heirs to pass it on to. If he'd have survived and had children himself, then the the business could have carried on and could still be part of Crawley affairs today. I mean, that's just one. And as we know, 750,000 plus men never came back. The impact it must have had right throughout the nation, its I, I don't think you can quantify it.
0: And when you think what Crawley became after the Second World War as a new town, the new town that I grew up in, you know, he would have, as a builder, would have probably
1: had a very heavy hand in, in, in all of that. Oh, yeah, the, the that was shortly after all that started happening. The business slowly but surely wound up. I, I do have a picture of my grandfather meeting the then Princess Elizabeth at the opening of Manor Royal. So they were still the, the, the business was still going then, and they were still playing a part in it then. But of course, there was no there was nobody to pass the uh, the business on to, so it got quietly wound up. My grandfather died uh, in 1951. And the business was then being run by um, his brother, Uncle Don. And uh, Uncle Don was a machine gunner in in the last months of the war. He was, he was a 19 in 1918, and he was mobilized and sent out to the front, as so many others were, because they basically, we were asking 19 and 18-year-olds to win the war for us at that point. He was a machine gunner. And uh, I dread to think of exactly what he experienced. But I can't help but think, because he died of a debil- debilitating illness himself, I can't help but think that he may have um, had a very strong whiff of gas or something, and it's had so- some sort of really detrimental effect on him.
0: And and again, you know, just describing their history, it's the echoes of the Great War continuing down decades and decades long after it had finished. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely, because uh, when I like I say, researching this lately, I I have discovered names of fellas, and it, it says in their obituary in the newspapers that they have died of war-related injuries. Um, I came across a, a, a chap uh, only last week by the name of Harry Denman. Uh, Denman's is a, a very old crawley family name. Uh, he uh, he died in 1927, and it says that he he succumbed finally to his war wounds, whatever they were, and also alludes to the fact that he won the military medal for saving four of his colleagues one dreadful day in 1918, and this story has been completely forgotten about. So, yeah, men continue to die for years after the end of the Great War. Incredible
0: and and when, when the war was over, I mean Crawley, like many other communities, I guess, would have wanted to respond to those losses with with warm with a war memorial war
1: memorials. Oh, yeah, um there was a lot of to in and fro in and a lot of arguing at one point the town uh, one chap from the town council wanted a captured German gun to be on display in the high street. So I can just imagine what the uh, War Office would have said about that. But it, they eventually settled on what we would know as the Memorial Park now uh, due to um, a chap called Sir John Drughorn, who was, um, he became a baronet actually. He lived at Ifield Hall, which is, Ifield is adjacent to Crawley. Uh, and his son William was killed on the Somme on July the 15th, 1916. So he, what he did was, is he said, right, I'm going to buy this piece of land and it's going to be a recreation ground. Um, I think the overall price uh, was something a little over a thousand pounds so he said what I'm going to do is I'm going to put 500 pounds towards the project and he invited the townspeople uh, to contribute as much as they could or as little as they could but as long as they contributed something um, then the they could legitimately point to it and say, This is our memorial park because we've all contributed to it. And they did. There was a there's a huge list of contributors that appeared in the local newspaper. And they they virtually, as far as I can tell, virtually every family contributed something. So it was the it was their memorial part for their
0: fallen. Because he didn't have a direct the uh, kind of link to Crawley, did he? Because his son William uh, was killed, like you said, killed with the Stockbrokers Battalion, I think it was, on the Somme in yeah. July 1916. Um, mm. and I don't even know if he ever came to Crawley, but his name is on
1: is on the memorial. I know it's one of these things. It's just one of these strange uh, things. You think, why is that there? Because uh, William himself, I think, was born in Amsterdam. Yes, and as you say, I, it's doubtful whether he actually set foot in Crawley. And the only reason that Sir John was there was because he bought Ifield Hall as a country residence. So he wasn't it wasn't like he was old Crawley. It wasn't even new Crawley, really. He was just it was like a, a country residence for him, so which he frequented as and when he felt like it. it was I, I, I wouldn't have thought he'd have called Crawley his home. Nevertheless, he felt moved to do that. So and that's why we have that memorial park today.
0: And many years ago where he lived in Ifield Hall, it became a kind of a community space and I was working for a charity then as a volunteer and we went to an event now, I can't remember what the event was, and uh, we had to park the van up in the the grounds of it and walk across what had been their kind of front lawn. Uh, And I could see this very ornate sundial uh, and being kind of drawn to these things. I wandered over to it and there I could see written along the side of it, posiers. So I thought, what's this? And it was a memorial to him. It was a memorial sundial to William Drughorn, killed at posseus. Yeah, apparently
1: that, that still exists. I think it's been passed on to a relative. It's obviously not there anymore, but it's been passed on to a relative. So it still exists. I'd love to see it.
0: Yeah, it was extraordinary. And then there was a. I came across something, because I, I guess it's kind of interesting to see how these things happen, because the hall was owned by the Montgomery family, I think, before that. Yeah. And, and they had a son killed on the Somme of the Irish Guards. Um, That's right. But he's not on the memorial, so...
1: uh... I I know, and he's not the only one. There are, I think there's, well, there's at least three, I know. Of the most notable is uh, Arthur Henry Smith, who was uh, killed at Third Deep in dreadful circumstances. They were sent up to mount an attack in the pelting rain. And when it came time, they had to lie in shell holes filled with water for 12 hours, and then it was time for them to... uh, launch the attack and of course they're helping each other out of these dreadful pits of mud and the Germans are just machine gunning them down before they've they've even moved a couple of paces and he was a long-standing resident at the high street but what happened there I think was is that he married a girl from Red Hill and she was so distraught when he was killed understandably that she moved back to Red Hill so when it came for for the names to be put on the official memorials Poor old Arthur got missed off.
0: And I think this is one of the interesting things that you discover, don't you, when you do this kind of research, is that, you know, in some cases there are almost as many men missed off as there were put on.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, like we've just said about William Drugholm, there are people put on there who really don't have that much of a connection to the town. And this is what I mean when I say it. it's, like, it's like trying to find your way through a minefield. I think it gives
0: an interesting insight into the kind of mindset behind these memorials as to... Who, who they chose to include and who they didn't, and who got missed off and who didn't get missed off. It's it's fascinating.
1: It, it is. And there seems to be, from our perspective, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. And obviously there was, there there were reasons for it that were immediately obvious to everyone at the time. But to us,
0: no. And of course now it's it's more than a century. Uh, in fact, it's probably almost a century since these memorials were placed in Crawley. And Crawley now is a very different town, as we've said, you know, over 100,000 people living there. And even, you know, since I was born there, it's changed out of all kind of proportion, really. But you kind of did some projects, didn't you, during the centenary to try and bring the, the focus back onto some of these stories?
1: Yeah, I, I did, actually. I mean, I, I did a lot. Um, I was got a lot of support from uh, from the town council and we came up with the idea that we would dedicate part of the uh, memorial part we would call it heroes walk and what we did was we put boards um, up so they would tell a story so as you walk from one end which is where marks and spencers is towards county mile you could uh, you could start reading the board on your left and the, and the subject uh, the story would continue on the board on your right and then over to the left and the right again and we did that every year throughout the centenary. And and it it was really moving because these chaps' names were being read and their bits of their story were being told 100 years after they'd fallen in the town that they called home. And I spent uh, one or two wonderful afternoons just sitting there on one of those benches there, just watching people literally come in one e- entrance of the park and be captivated by the stories that were unfolding in front of them. And they would go from uh, left to right, left to right, all the way up into county mile and back again. And it was it, it was wonderful. And, and to see, to to play a part in and bring those men's uh, stories out into the light in the place they called home, it was wonderful. It was one of the things I'm most proud of. And, and you've
0: also gone on to write uh, two books so far on, on Crawley Men and you're working on a third.
1: Yes, uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, I, re- I, I realised some time ago that I, I have in fact been writing a trilogy all this time, um, not uh, two or three different books. The, the first book, All the Bright Company of Heaven, um, is basically uh, the story of the impact of the Great War on a small Sussex town. The second book, After Times of War, follows those men into the trenches of the Western Front and uh, where they met their fate. Uh, and the, the the one I'm currently writing at the moment, Piles of Remembrance, is um, really, it's a short basic history of the experiences of the men of the 4th Battalion. Um, as I've said, it's almost like Band of Brothers in places. But uh, it's more about how the town and how the country came to remember and how remembrance, as we understand it, came to be. There's some wonderful stories that uh, I've uncovered uh, because part of the, com- the comrades of, of the Great War uh, movement, uh, Crawley had a branch and they had a football team and Uncle Don played for them and the Night Boys played for them. And behind those stories um, of football matches and team lineups, you can actually trace some of these blokes' lived experiences of the Great War. And it's yeah, it's it's it's. It's subject that's very close to my heart, but it is absolutely fascinating.
0: Well, I mean, the, the, your two, your first two books are, are really excellent. I mean, I particularly liked After Tones of War, which is sitting next to me as I'm talking to you now. Um, oh, that's
1: high
0: praise indeed. Well, no, uh, great how you kind of wove all those stories together and, and, you know, having a connection to the town and reading some of those names. I went to school with people that had those names and over the years I've rescued the odd medal to one or two of them and it, it's kind of, it's nice really, but I think it shows... The importance of this kind of research it's not just kind of antiquarianism by gathering a few facts you're kind of exposing the wider history of the first world war through the eyes of one town
1: yeah i always use the expression it probably is like a microcosm i think for the uh, the, it's my microcosm uh, of the the rest of the country because you extrapolate for all these experiences out to include the rest of the country, and you get a sense of just how enormous an impact it had on every single living person at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll, and we'll put some links
0: to those books onto the podcast website. If uh, anyone listening to this was thinking of researching their own local warm oil, Rennie, would you give them any advice?
1: <laughs> um Yeah, I, well... Uh, From a practical perspective, I'd be only too uh, happy to help people uh, if they decided to go down this path. As regards general advice, you've got to be aware that uh, this all came about for me 15 years ago when I started researching my family history. There was one detail that was wrong, and I picked away at it. And here I am 15 years later, and I'm still picking away at it once you start down this path it's a very long road but it's also a very rewarding one and your passion for it really shows through so thanks for for joining us
0: Rennie. thanks for telling us a bit about Crawley and the great war and you're welcome uh, thanks for having me no it's our pleasure and and we hope to see you out on the old front line soon
1: yes one day soon look forward to it thanks Renny cheers
0: You've been listening to an episode of the Old Frontline with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk, where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com/oldfrontline or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.